All right, we have an awesome guest today. She is currently running for the fourth district seat for the Board of Supervisors. Some of you may recognize her name from the Eureka City Council. She's currently finishing up her second term. Last I checked, I know the race is close for the fourth district seat. I'm not sure who's pulling ahead. I just know that it's close. So there's that. Our guest was awesome. She was super nice, incredibly friendly. It's kind of a short one, but it was definitely interesting. I'm going to let her take over from here. Please give it up for Natalie Arroyo. So how has canvassing been going? It's been going well. Yeah? Yeah. Do you enjoy doing that? I do, actually. It always takes me a little bit of like a mental leap to get to get out the door. It's like, I don't know. I, that first push. Yeah. Just getting out the door, leaving my dogs, leaving my cozy home. But I, I enjoy it. Yeah. What's the general sentiment out on the streets? Very positive. Lots plus. I mean, it could be that I'm mostly targeting... Uh, targeting sounds bad, but I'm, I'm um, you know, going to homes with likely supporters um, at this stage in the campaign at least because I'm really trying to get those votes at the you know in the final hours just get everybody motivated yeah okay exactly that ballot that's sitting on your table might want (laughs) to start thinking about filling that out early on I was um I was reaching out to more people and just like a more um diverse cross-section of the community but now I'm like my Natalie voters I'm like hey don't forget to vote for me don't forget about me I'm still here (laughs) yeah totally that's cool and you get a Talk to people and kind of see, okay, where, what's bothering you? Yeah. What is your biggest issue today? Absolutely. Yeah. What is, what would you say is the biggest problem most people are concerned about now? I know we have a lot because there's COVID, there's inflation, but as far as your district, what's kind of, what's the big issue for everyone? I would say housing has been the top one. So yeah, that's a key across. Absolutely. Across Rica, right. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's like, uh, not just housing for low-income folks, just housing across the board, um, middle incomes, high-income earners, um, really housing across the board. Yeah. Yeah. What is your plan to tackle that? Do you have an idea of where you would want to start? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're lucky right now because the state has a $100 billion surplus, um, which is pretty rare. <laughs> for, and you a know, pretty least, large amount. Yeah. It's it's a, an amount that's hard for me to fathom, but um, and really wants to sink a lot of funding into housing. So I think we need some we need some public-private partnerships to really lead the way. And they they did some – they passed some bill or something where you, now you can subdivide lots a yes. little more easy and you can build these duplexes on single-family lots. Yeah, I think absolutely. That's a, I think that's a good step. Yeah, It'll be so interesting to see where that goes. Definitely. Yeah, the land use and zoning changes seem to be really significant. And the county and the city of Eureka have both made a lot of those changes. But um, now one of the challenges for people to build those second units in their backyards or, you know, um, if you're subdividing and selling off a lot, that's one thing to someone who would like to build a home there. But if um, owners of single family residences wanted to convert like a garage or um, or add another unit, there's not a lot of financing available for those. So people really have to be able to take out a home equity loan or a second mortgage, and that's just not available to everyone. So I think we need a financing program um, that's actually like government subsidized finan- financing. Um, and when I say subsidized, I don't mean that government would sink a lot of money into it, but just, um, you know, having a low... Um, 
a low rate for loans would be really important. To help it get off the ground. Exactly. Especially now with yeah. interest rates. Yes. They're getting a little hectic. <laughs> they're going higher. Yes. Yeah. I know. Totally. So what, because you were on the Eureka City Council. I still am. Yes. You still are. Yeah. You finish your last term, obviously, this year. Yes. What got you interested in politics? You know, when I bought my first home um, in 2013, I was I started looking into who was representing me. I had paid some attention to the Eureka City Council for years, but I wouldn't say I was like watching every meeting or honed into every single decision. It was just really kind of hit and miss when I was interested in something. Um, and I had always kind of thought, you know, frankly, it seemed to be a lot of people who were retired. And I know it only pays $500 a month. So I thought, you know, um, it might be interesting to me, but I never really thought I could do it seriously, partly because of money. <laughs> but um, when I bought a home and, um, you know, I, I started looking into who was representing me, I realized that, you know, I thought there could be some more choice for voters. So mostly I wanted, demo, you know, like the democratic process to be effective for people. Um, I ran because the person that was in the seat was... Um, pretty openly denying climate change. Um, and as a coastal city, I didn't think that was a great fit. Um, and then, you know, there was really only one person running. Um, they had been appointed and they were running unopposed. So to me, that's just not democratic. So I wanted to make sure people had a choice. Yeah, having a choice, having a plethora of candidates, I think is always a good thing. Yeah. Because then you get a wide berth of, okay, where does everybody stand on these issues? And who aligns most with what I want yeah. in our direction? I think yeah. that's important. And like in that race, we had two very different people with two really different directions. So I think it was really clear for people. Um, there were only two candidates that first time. Then the second time I ran, there were three candidates. And then in this race now, there are three candidates. So people have lots to choose from. <laughs> and climate change seems to be right up your alley with the work that you've done, obviously. And you seem pretty passionate about that wind farm that they're implementing. What is your stance on nuclear energy? Do you have a stance on Ooh, that yet? Nobody's asked me that. Um, I, you know, I understand that it can be clean if managed well, but I'm too concerned about nuclear energy proliferation here in our region, in part because we're on um, a triple junction. You know, we're so close to these fault lines, and I just think there's too much um, risk of tsunami and um, earthquake and other natural disasters in our region. So I'm not sure where it really is a good fit. Um, I think it's just too hazardous potentially. And we've seen with, you know, Chernobyl and what happened in Japan, you know, just some ongoing concerns that I think outweigh the the um, benefits. Because that is really the almost the best source of energy, right? If we, in theory, if we could make it so that, you know, these meltdowns don't ever happen, it yeah. seems like that would be... That would be the best way to go. I mean, it would be amazing if we could make it perfectly safe 100% of the time. And I think that's just, um, we're not there yet with the technology. Um, you know, I, I'm a Trekkie. I love Star Trek. So, you know, if we could get to that level with our um, reactors, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. But they're always having meltdowns on, on the Enterprise, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's the best example, right? They always seem to have something going wrong. They do. I think, I don't know enough really about nuclear energy to, to delve too far into that. I just wanted to get your take. Because sure. it seems like a lot of people that are pro green energy, that's kind of their their line in the sand is yes, yeah. I, we need to start moving that way, but nuclear is still that's still off the table. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm also not an expert. Um, I just, from what I understand, just my my um, reading on it, which honestly hasn't been at a very deep level. I just, um, you know, I'm concerned about. 
the um, the nuclear material that you know was in Humboldt Bay and and is still you know close at hand here and you know so I, I just think we need to um, advance a little on our technology before we do more nuclear proliferation in general. Yeah, that's yeah. the big thing is make sure that the technology gets there. Absolutely. I think, before yeah. we get buck wild, I think it is a good step. I think I think that would be the best option down the road. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but I think it's something to keep an eye on. It's certainly something that, you know, I, I wouldn't be close to. I know some people just say like absolutely never no nuclear proliferation whatsoever. Um, you know, if we get to the point where the technology is safer, then, you know, I certainly think Give it's it worth exploring. Yeah. Is there a, you mentioned nuclear waste in the Bay. Is that a pretty significant problem. I haven't heard so, about that. Yeah. There, so there, um, the Humboldt Bay uh, power plant used to be a nuclear plant, and now it's um, now it's not. Now it's a natural gas-based plant. Um, but there's still um, some nuclear material in the you know in the area. It's it's stored really carefully. But um, there were some concerns in the past about about leaks and um, and safety and security. Um, I know when they were removing some of that material, uh, I actually helped with a wetland restoration project really close by where we actually had to do soil testing to make sure um, there was no hot soil, which thankfully, thankfully there was not. Um, but it was interesting to, you know, there were armed guards, like lots and lots of armed guards there because they were concerned about, you know, the material getting in the hands of the wrong folks. So it was kind of interesting to um, be on the site. And I was just out there, you know, planting wetland plants and um, going about my day. And, you know, here there are like, you know, 20 armed guards in the bushes. <laughs> yeah. That's another thing with nuclear, right? Is it's not exactly you can't just walk onto the property and take a look at it. Exactly. You gotta be a little yeah. more careful. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I didn't I knew that it used to be a nuclear plant. I didn't know that it was converted. Yeah, it was just was a few years ago. I don't exactly remember what year that took place. It might have been more than a few years ago, but um about ten years ago I'd say. So you've been pretty involved just community wide then. Yeah. Starting definitely. out on the city council, being involved you were with the environmental the redwood community action agency yeah that seems like that's been a big part of of where you've come from definitely yeah i've um, worked there for about 16 years now so it's a nonprofit based here in eureka and i'm always careful to say that when i'm interviewing and talking about things with my political hat on that i'm not representing rcaa um gotta throw but, that in there right? yeah i always try to get that in there um but yeah it's been a huge part of um you know my um my development as a person and I've gotten to work on a ton of cool environmental projects, transportation planning projects, um, community health projects. So it's been really awesome. Do you feel like that's kind of lined you up now to go into this bigger position of being a city council member? It has. Or city county supervisor, not a city council member. I forgot to ask if I can take a break to blow my nose. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're live, but yes, you can definitely blow your nose. I'm sorry. No problem. It'll just be a moment. It's just me. I'll just fill in the dead air. We're just, We're kind of working out the kinks. I've just started doing these live episodes. Yeah. Especially now with all these candidates coming on, I wanted to make sure I could help them get whatever they had to say out there. Because um, obviously, if this comes out after the seventh, that would be a little awkward. That would be, yeah, yeah. yeah no, this is great. Thanks for um, making time to do it before yeah, the no, election. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I was yeah. very excited to chat with you. Kind totally. of pick your brain and see where you stand. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, my um, my work at RCA has been, so for the first few years, I did um, a stormwater protection project. So really um, helping protect water quality in Humboldt Bay. Um, and now I'm focused mostly on trails and transportation planning. So um, I don't work on any projects in the city of Eureka. I work on everything outside of city limits to avoid any conflicts of interest. Um But it's been really cool, and I've learned a lot about working closely with the county, actually. I've worked with a lot of different county departments in that capacity, too. 
So why the jump from council member to supervisor? Well, I'm termed out this year. <laughs> so the um, actually, there's some question about whether myself and Kim Bergal are, are termed out because um, there was some redistricting and our wards changed. So I think um, the intent of the of the law is that you can only do two back-to-back -back terms. Um, eight years total. Yes, eight years total back-to-back. Uh, -back. And there have actually been some p people who have left, done something else for a few years, come back and done another term. Oh, so past. you could do more terms. I could down the line okay. <laughs> if I really, really wanted to. But um, at this point, you know, I, I recognize that the intent is to have two back-to-back -back terms total. So I'd like to move to the county and see if I can um, do some good there. Yeah. What would you say has been your greatest accomplishment working for the city? Ooh. That's a big, that's a loaded question, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say, can I pick two? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, there've been a lot, but I would say that um, the most, I think, well-known accomplishment of the city council during my time has been um, the return of Tulawat to the Wiat tribe, um, which happened a few years ago. And that was really something that um, both myself and Councilmember Bergel worked really hard on in different ways and um, kind of through our networks. And so that was a huge honor. And people from all over the world have actually asked us for input about how we did that and um, you know what the process looked like. And then one of the other big changes that is in the what I call the boring but important category <laughs> is um, the update of our city general plan and then our zoning code, um, because that's going to really shape what the community looks like in the future. And I think we're not yet seeing all the impacts of that, um, but we will over the coming years where, you know, people can now subdivide their properties or um, build more housing or um, you know, have neighborhood markets, things like that. So it's a lot more flexible and modern updated zoning code. So I'm excited about that. Are you at all worried about stepping into this supervisor position with the current state of the county where you have the auditor controller situation, you have county budget, which is a problem. You have all yeah. these issues that are kind of hitting their peak right now and, and you're going to be walking yep. in hitting the ground running. <laughs> I can imagine that would be a little alarming, at least from an outside yeah. perspective. I would be kind of <laughs> shitting my pants a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah, it's a little unnerving. Honestly, it's a tough time to be jumping in, but I think somebody you know has to do it who has a lot of passion for the community. Um, and I also have a really you know policy-minded approach to things, and um, I like to think I'm very strategic and thoughtful about my decisions. So I think it's important to have somebody good in there, even when times get tough. And I know times are pretty tough right now. I mean, we've been through a global pandemic. Um, we have, you know, uh, we're short-staffed in in every, you know, uh, government agency. Pretty much, they're they're all short-staffed. <laughs> so, Crazy, right? I know it's a wild time. So, I mean, unemployment is at all-time lows. We have a serious housing shortage. Um, there are budget concerns. So, there's a lot going on. But um, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say I have the solution right now for every single issue, but I think I have an approach that'll be really effective. I think that's the honest answer, right? Yeah. If you're sitting there saying, <laughs> I've got this answer, I've got this answer, this is how we're going to do it. I'd be like, okay, but. Yeah, yeah. How does that actually pan out when, yeah. when the rubber meets the road? Absolutely. And, and I really don't have all the answers. I do think I have a good head on my shoulders and I like working closely with staff to solve problems and community residents to solve problems. So. Um, part of it is just thinking, you know, like you're, if you're creative minded and have some internal fortitude and are willing to, you know, sit down with everyone and say like, how can we, how can we make this better? What steps can we take? I think that's what it takes to be an elected official. Talk to me about the Coast Guard. Oh yeah. I want to hear about that. <laughs> I love I, talking about I the Coast Guard. I read that you 
were your reserve officer, right? I when I read that, I was like, okay, we're definitely going to touch on that. Okay. What was the motive to enlist? Which was back in 2012? Yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah, so I enlisted in 2012. Um, I did apply to officer candidate school to be an active duty coastie. And some of that was just what was going on in my life at the time. I was ready to make some big changes. And um, I didn't get picked up the first time to be an officer. So I enlisted um, as as an enlisted member. And I became a marine science technician. And, and a big part of that was wanting to serve my community here at home, right here on Humboldt Bay. Um, at the time I was, I was willing to move, um, and to be sent anywhere to, to do whatever mission the Coast Guard had in store for me. Um, but when that didn't pan out, I just decided I would serve here at home and, um, marine science technicians do water quality protection and enforce federal regulations. And so I learned a ton through that. And I also got a lot of leadership training that was sort of of a different type of leadership than, than I experienced in, in Humboldt, which is, I would say like, Learning about leadership in Humboldt is a lot more collaborative and learning about leadership in the Coast Guard is a lot more hierarchical. So it's like, how do you, you know, how do you influence other people to achieve a goal? How, how do you work within this hierarchical system? And then last year, um, I went to officer candidate school finally and became an officer. So now I'm actually not stationed in Humboldt. That's the downside. I'm, I'm stationed in Novato. So I go down once a month to Novato to, to serve. Well, congratulations on that. That's Thank huge. you. Yeah, it was really awesome. Yeah, I think I'm a big fan of just the military in general and that line of service. And I think part of me believes that in order to serve in the public field, you should almost have to have to go through some sort of military career just to just to kind of get your feet wet. Absolutely. And then, you, and then the people know, okay, there's a better chance you're not in politics for the money, right? Because you've yeah. already done some self-service, yeah. and then you come out and say, "Okay, I think I can. I think I can do something." Absolutely, yeah, I I concur. It's always um, I actually feel like all of our presidents should have to serve in the military. <laughs> Seems like it'd be a good litmus test, right? <laughs> yeah, or or some form of national service that's really um, kind of part of an organization that isn't just about you as an individual and your own, um, you know, kind of. Uh, goals and aspirations and profits. Um, it's really nice to see that in others. And I'm certainly the only candidate in this race who has military service under their belt. So, um, but I think it's important and it demonstrates a lot about character and it's, um, you know, going through boot camp is something that unless someone's experienced it, you know, it's like really that it kind of breaks you down and builds you back up and again, in a way that's hard to explain to folks, but I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I think more people should just because it is very important yeah. you know i think that is an aspect of society that a lot of people kind of just brush to the side in some yeah. regards we're all thankful that people do sign up and then that never really translates to anything you know? yeah yeah well and i think there are other avenues too to demonstrate you know commitment to community yeah, you could do public yeah. service you could do they have those volunteer programs where you go to another country and you know, help build. You could be a part yeah. of the job corps. You could do other things. Yeah. I think it's just that public service that that matters. Before you start, because supervisors make ninety five grand, somewhere around there, somewhere yeah. there which yeah. is kind of a jump from five hundred. It know? is, I yeah, five hundred a month to a not crazy, like but yeah, or something, yeah. Um, um, so that's kind and of. And I think you, I think you can get into that realm where people go into politics just for the money. Yeah, and then we have problems. Yeah, I would say that, um, yeah, it's it's definitely um, going to be a change for me to leave. I actually have four jobs <laughs> and, um, to, to, and, and a lot of, you know, volunteer service commitments. So it's going to be a change to go from that to, um, you know, one 
primary position. Um, are you going to be dropping all those other positions? Are you gonna yeah, to, I yeah. won't. If I'm elected, I wouldn't stay at Redwood Community Action Agency. And I also teach at Cal Poly Humboldt. Um, so I would not be able to continue teaching either. So um, we'll see. Yeah, I, I love all those hats that I wear in the community. And it's really fun to, um, yeah, to just fl fill all those roles. But I definitely would be setting those aside so that I can focus exclusively on representing District 4. Yeah, it seems like it would be a big time commitment, right? Yeah. Definitely. Little, you don't want to spread yourself too thin. Exactly. And and that's actually one of the things that's another major motivation for me in, in running for supervisors, just to be able to spend the bulk of my time, you know, all of my time really representing the district because there's so much as a council member, um, you know, it could be a full time job. It's just that it, um, you know, I have to pay my bills. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not independently wealthy or, or already retired. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's something that I look forward to spending my time to do. Yeah, it's crazy that they only make $500 a month. Yeah. I don't know what what their price rate should be, but $500 seems kind of kind of low. <laughs> yeah. The mayor makes 900. So if anyone out there is uh wanting to run for mayor, it's a slightly more well compensated position. Not as much as county supervisor, <laughs> but you got to take what you can get. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's it's got to be hard dropping those other hats to kind of just assume one role though. Yeah, I think it'll be a big change in my identity because I, I'm, even though, you know, essentially I'm a full-time politician, you know, when people see me in the community, it's like, they're never not thinking, oh, that's, that person's, a, you know, a city council member. Um, not that everybody recognizes me, but you know what I mean? Um, I'm never really taking that hat fully off, but, um, you know, I think I get the experience of doing other things in my life as part of my job. And, and so that's really rewarding. So it'll definitely be a change in my identity. Um, one thing that I think is really important about compensating elected officials is that if you want good people to run from a diversity of perspectives and backgrounds and ages, you really do have to compensate them. Like I think $500 a month for Eureka City Council is far too low. We're the county seat. We have a lot of big issues that are time consuming. And I think that they should be compensated a little more and not, you know, because they're in it for the money, but just so they can spend more time on it. Yeah. What do you think it should be? Do you have a price in mind? I mean, at least double. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, honestly, when I was first elected, um, you know, my income has gone up a bit since then. But when I was first elected eight years ago, that $500 a month was like, was a really big deal to me, um, you know, and it, and it still is. It's not, it's not a drop in the bucket, um, but at least double that seems appropriate. But that would be, have, have to be decided by the voters. I would imagine it's not quite as demanding as a supervisor position, but it seems like there would still be a lot of work involved. Yeah, I mean the the population of the of District Four is is roughly equivalent to the population of the, the whole city of Eureka. Um, it's just uh, shaped differently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it includes you know Samoa and portions of Myrtletown. Um, so it's certainly representing a similar population, I would say, even though the city has five wards. So I guess you could say it's you know it's a smaller population. But, um, you know, I think many of the issues are similar. It's just everything's kind of scaled up on the county level. Like the budget is significantly larger and <laughs> the number of employees and, you know, a lot of the um, contract negotiations are more complex, things like that. What would you, if you had to, if you had to guess how much time you spent in that role when you were a council member mm -hmm. of like your total day, what would you say it was? 30%? 50%? It varies so wildly. Yeah, I would say, you know, like, honestly, an hour to two most days. And then when we have a council meeting, it's like eight, 
eight hours. Yeah, all day. <laughs> and and a lot of the preparation before, you know, so a lot of times it's like weekend preparation for a Tuesday council meeting because we'll get the agenda usually on a Thursday. Then you have Friday to kind of make some calls or uh, meet with people about items that are on the agenda. And then, you know, the weekend to really read the whole packet because it's a ton of information. Sometimes there's reports that are really thick. Um, and I'm not going to lie, it's not always possible to read every single thing in great detail, but you really want to be familiar with what you're voting on. Um, and then another work day before the council meeting. Um, you know, so it's really, I would say that those weeks are a lot more jam-packed. Yeah. So an average, I mean, it's hard to say. People ask that a lot and I should, I should actually tally it well, for the rest to, of this it's year. It's hard to gauge how much work you put to something, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're um, like me, if you wear a lot of hats, you're like... Sometimes it's not helpful to um, to really tally how much time you spend because it's exhausting to think about. Um, so I just compartmentalize my jobs. <laughs> and you you were a lecturer, environmental science and management. Yes. Yeah. At Cal Poly so, yeah. So I still teach um, a class every semester in environmental conflict resolution. So it's a class for environmental sciences and forestry majors, um, and it's required for a lot of them. And then some students take it as an elective, but that's less common. And um, so I usually have 35 or so students a semester, and I'll be teaching again this fall. So that'll be maybe my last semester. We'll see. Is that a, a three, four credit course? It's a three. Uh, it's 3.3 teaching units for me. Um, for students, I think it's three. So okay. they give me a little a little extra for preparation time. And then I'm also a, a graduate student Yeah, right I was now. just going to ask you about that. <laughs> I'm a graduate student in the same department. Um, and so I am um, currently working on that. And I'll be taking classes this semester, too. And I, I think I'll be done with the bulk of my coursework this fall. Um, and I timed it that way, you know, hoping that I would be done with almost all of it um, before having to um, having to take office. So, How many more semesters do you think you have before that's done? So I'll probably be working on my thesis um, research this summer and fall and hopefully just a little bit in 2023. Yeah. Yeah, that lines out pretty well, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I wish I'd started a semester or two earlier. Um, it would have been nice, you know, during the pandemic to when people are home a lot to be taking classes online, but um, I didn't quite jump on that ball fast enough. So here I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't want to be, you know, struggling as a, as a member of the board and then also being like, I gotta, I gotta go to class. So yeah. <laughs> I'll be done with class. Yeah. So there's that'll that. be nice. You'll just be working on your thesis. Then. Yeah. I'll be okay. writing maybe in evenings or weekends. Um, but yeah, I'll definitely um, devote plenty of time to <laughs> being a supervisor. How did you like teaching? I love it. Um, I really enjoy, like, I feel like it keeps me in touch with um, what people in their 20s are about. <laughs> um, so it's actually fun being both a student and, a, and an instructor has been really um, interesting. Just I, I feel like I'm I'm not always in touch with like the student community otherwise, because even though there are a lot of students who live in, uh, in Eureka and in and, and District 4, um, I don't have as many chances to interact with them otherwise. And so it's kind of nice um, yeah, just to experience like what people are, are are seeing and perceiving in Humboldt County who come from outside of the county. Um, and also seeing the trends in like what students are, are studying and, and what they're interested in um, scholastically is really cool because I think that's really insightful for economic development. And you almost, you know, kind of have your ear to the ground. You get to see, okay, what are, what are the problems facing them, our students? Because Cal Poly, especially now that they're rebranding and going down that polytechnic path, that's going to be a 
a major player in the economy, I would imagine, here coming Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's huge to see, you know, what are they what are they liking about Humboldt? What are their challenges? Um, you know, what kind of, um, you know, what in Eureka do they want to do? It's really cool to kind of hear from, like, they love to go to In-N-Out <laughs> and Target and the Friday night market when that's happening. So it's like certain things that students do or don't know about when it comes to the community. It's really interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, as as we expand with Cal Poly Humboldt, I know that, you know, there's plans to expand pretty significantly over the next few years. So I think that's going to be a lot of uh, need and opportunity to really interface with Cal Poly Humboldt. And I, I think I have strong relationships in several different departments and among staff um, at different levels that can be helpful. And that ties back into the housing problem, right? Yes. Which is huge for... Yeah. HSU, but I don't know if Cal Poly's done anything yet to address that, but that was a pretty significant problem. I watched some short documentary they put out online about all the kids just living out of their cars, and it was pretty, yeah. pretty shocking. Yeah, I've met, um, I've had several students who have said that they were essentially homeless, um, you know, crashing with different people or staying in their cars. Um, so there are significant plans to build more housing on campus as well as off campus. So um, the city of Eureka is looking to partner with Cal Poly Humble um, to expand housing opportunities, but also research facilities. So there, there's a, a lot of um, change, I think, coming to our community with that um, designation change. I think that'll be good. Yeah. Absolutely. It seems like some of it is choice. Some of the kids don't want to spend the money on on renting a place and they'd rather just save it. But it seems like some of it is also not a choice and they just can't afford it. Yeah. I mean, so just like folks who are struggling with housing who aren't students, I think there's just so many different personal circumstances and um, financial reasons and cultural reasons why they do or don't um, find housing and, you know, or avail themselves of, of resources in the community. Like there might be shelter space, for example, but if people, um, don't feel comfortable there, don't feel like that, you know, um, they, they're familiar or like interested in that particular offering. They just won't use it. So, yeah. What, I, I don't know how, how big of an issue homeless is in the fourth ward, but in Eureka, in the outer area, it's, it's pretty significant issue. Do you have I would a take say, on that? Yeah, I would say it's very significant. I mean, so the fourth ward includes the Samoa Peninsula, um, south of the bridge. So um, Samoa and Fairhaven and the, the North Shetty area. And, you know, I know there's ongoing challenges with um, folks camping, you know, in the dunes and, and on the peninsula. So that's, you know, that's a need to address. And um, throughout Eureka, so the fourth ward includes, you know, most of Eureka north of Henderson Center and then a little a little bump out down towards like the old Jacobs School site and then, you know, portions of Myrtletown. So I think when it comes to Myrtletown, I don't know, you live here, you might have a better sense of what it's like after hours at night. Um, I, you know, I spend a lot of time in Myrtletown during the day, so I don't see as much of the impact of homelessness in Myrtletown particularly. But um, what's it like at night? Um, I think it's gotten pretty bad everywhere. Yeah. I think it's gotten pretty bad everywhere. Yeah. It seems like, especially after COVID, it, it took a more dramatic turn and started climbing. You Agreed. see a lot more activity. And I don't know if it's just exacerbated now because the warmer weather's coming. And mm -hmm. so they're kind of mm -hmm. coming out a little bit more from the shelters and yeah, or just coming to the area more. But it's, yeah, it's not, it's not great. Yeah, yeah. And not great in the sense that a lot of it seems like it stems from 
mental health and and drug use especially yeah. over here at least yeah um you see a lot of people kind of struggling walking around the street yep definitely i i agree and it, it's um you know it's a problem all over the region not to not to pass yeah. the buck at all but um to, you know just to say like when i go down to Nevada monthly for example you know it's, oh yeah if you go down to la especially it's oh yeah we're a drop in the bucket compared yeah. to that san francisco la you know even the smaller communities but even like you know marin county is pretty pretty fancy <laughs> a lot of the communities there are pretty um you know i'd say it's very expensive to live there um and there are a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of investment in the community from those who do live there and there's still like a really visible problem. So, um, you know, I think we're not alone in that, that that's not necessarily comforting to people who have seen those changes in humble and are frustrated by them. Um, but you know, we need to take a multi-pronged approach and collaborate with cities who have, who have done things that are new or different from us. Um, you know, I think there are some, some communities who have built more permanent supportive housing, for example, for people who have um, severe behavioral health needs, and um, you know, and potentially that overlaps with with substance use. So we definitely need to see more of that constructed in our community. Is that kind of the direction that you're leaning? Is just more providing more housing? Yes, but um, specifically permanent supportive housing, which includes services for people. Um, and, you know, there's also a need in our community for somewhere for people to go when they've left a facility like Semper Virens, um, but they can't just be um, back out in the community. Like a halfway house? Something in the middle. Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, I think halfway house has a connotation. That yeah, not a good not one. Be, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, night, n- might not always be the best. Um, you know, essentially like a, a closed facility or a partially closed and partially, um, you know, outpatient facility where people can come to get services. So I know that there's a lot of um, focus on that right now and permanent supportive housing, but also like something a little bit more assertive than that for people who are conserved. So people who are in a state of conservatorship where someone else is temporarily making decisions for them because of their health needs. Um, you know, we really don't have a facility that supports those folks. And so what we've, what we've seen, or at least what I've witnessed is, you know, there are like veterans, um, housing projects and there are senior housing developments and there are a number of services that Betty Chen provides, Um, But those all have conditions, right? You have to be a senior, you have to be a veteran, you have to be on the path to being clean and sober, whatever the case may be. Um, So that has meant that a lot of the people that are still out there in the streets are the hardest to serve. So that's what I see. I don't know about what you observe, but it seems like it's getting worse because a lot of the people who are easiest to serve are are getting into housing. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the people that are left on the street are like the ones that are the hardest to deal with, I would say, as a community. They kind of fall through the cracks yeah. in those categories. Yeah. What do you make, if if that were to go through that permanent supportive housing, would you support drug restrictions on that? Or your approach is more let them do drugs, just get them off the streets first, and then make it more rehabilitative for them? Because that's, that's like the dual approach, right? <laughs> yeah, and everybody's yeah. got one camp that they're in. Yeah. And I wouldn't say I'm in one camp on that. You know, I mean, I guess um, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, people should have to follow some rules. Um, and then there's another part of me that's like the impact on the community is so great if people remain on the street who have the highest need, right? Like it's 
it's trash, it's potentially needle litter, it's, you know, um, it's human waste. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the impact is so severe um, that, you know, I, I guess I would fall somewhere in the middle. I would say that, you know, to try, try to move people towards using less um, or not using or taking advantage of, you know, medical intervention services and treatments would be ideal. But we got to get people into housing and off the streets because it's such an impact on our community in so many ways. They have in San Francisco, they have an app that actually tracks um, homeless defecation. So, you know, mm. okay, don't walk down that street because it got hit pretty hard today. Yeah. I mean, that's the extent that it can get to, right? I don't yeah. know what the, what the right answer is for that. Yeah. Because it's such a multifaceted problem. You it have is. mental health, you have yeah. drug use, you have some people that are just in a state of anarchy and don't want to, you know, bend to the system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you see that for sure. And, you know, I, it's hard for me to put myself in the headspace of someone who is like in that frame of mind, right? <laughs> like I, I can't, um, I well, live especially very... for you where you went through a structured program like the military, it's gotta be, yes. it's gotta be a little culture <laughs> like, shock. Here are the rules. And I grew up in the military. So, you know, there's a certain part of me that'll always be kind of like, here are the rules I'm going to abide by them. And here are like the cultural norms that I'm going to abide by. I will say Humboldt County has very different cultural norms than like the family that I grew up in too. There's this sort of longstanding outsider culture um, that I think is really prevalent here of people being like, I'm outside the system. The rules don't apply to me. A very kind of libertarian way of viewing the world. And and so that's the system we're functioning in. So people are like, well, you need to conform to the rules. But it's like we live in this society here that's very different from like when I first moved to Humboldt, I lived in Petrolia, which couldn't have been more different than how I grew up. <laughs> and it was in like the heyday of um, of cannabis there. You know, so it's like super rural, you know, everybody has this kind of code where they look out for each other, but it's very different than the code that I grew up with. You grew up in Florida? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was okay. born in Miami, so uh, to an Air Force family. And so we mostly lived in Florida, close to Air Force bases. And then you went to school in Gainesville and that's where you got your BA in poli-sci. Yes, okay. exactly. So I went to school at the University of Florida and... Um, yeah, it was. Uh, was that intentional? Were you thinking, oh, maybe I could go into politics with this <laughs> you know, degree? Or you were just. I wasn't. I, I studied international relations and then moved to pol political science. And I went to school really young. So I don't think I, I started at 17 and I was like, I don't know what I want to do. So I, I just took courses that were interesting to me, which isn't necessarily the approach I'd recommend to all students, but it worked for me. So I got through my degree pretty fast. And um, by the time, like, Two years in, I was like, what what courses have I taken? What degree could I make from these courses that I've taken? So I'm certainly interested in social science and political science and, um, you know, international affairs. But also, I was always really interested in that environmental side, too. Yeah, I think a lot of kids fall into that camp, right? They yeah. just go to school and they're like, you know, I'll just take, I'll do some undergrad work. Just try to get the the rough stuff out of the way first and then you you hit your junior year and you're like i don't know what i'm working towards yet i, <laughs> yeah. I guess we just gotta plug and play and see what we can get out of those yeah and i just wanted to get a degree um i felt you know that i i just wanted to get through that fast and then go see what i really wanted to do in the world and potentially you know go back to school or or do you know take a different track later and that's really what ended up happening so did you uh, have to take out student loans to go to school I didn't, this was before, no, but this was before the enlistment, right? This was pre-enlistment, okay. yeah. So I'm, I'm using my GI Bill now as a graduate student. Um, I did not have to take out loans. Um, I worked 
all through college. So I worked full time as like a pizza delivery driver and a bartender. And I did all these various things. Um, and then I also had a little bit of um, GI Bill from, from my family. What do you make of the whole student loan debate? As someone that has gone through and now earned the GI Bill, yeah. how do you fall on that topic? I would love it if we could find a way to finance school for, for people, especially um, through their AA or AS degree that first two years. I think that would be really beneficial. People would have the choice between training in the trades and um, you know training in a more traditional kind of um, path to get a, a university degree. So a wide variety of options for folks. Um, I wouldn't feel in any way, and this is part of just like my way of looking at the world, if I had to pay for something and then the next person like gets that as a benefit. I'm like, good for you. <laughs> I'm happy for them. I'm not like, oh, everyone has to suffer because I had to, you know, work my That's way That's a school. weird mentality to have. A lot of people have that though. Yeah. Not just yeah. in student loans. It's in a lot of things of, no, I had to go through it. So everybody now yeah. has to go through it. We all have to suffer because that's the way it is. Yeah. I suffered. Totally. Yeah. And I just don't, I don't feel that way. I feel like you know, I don't have like a zero sum game way of looking at the the world though. I'm like, there's there's enough pie for everyone. <laughs> like there's enough to go around. Know. Yeah. Or like uh, enough if we plan our resources effectively. I don't have like a Pollyanna approach to the world either. I'm not like, oh, there's just endless resources. I know that resources are limited based on, you know, my experience in in figuring out how to allocate them, right? But um but to think that we could never provide that level of education for people with in in our you know advanced rich world <laughs> is, is silly to me so i'd love to see us be able to do that yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens i know biden's supposedly working on some stuff yeah but i think loan forgiveness would be good but i don't think it solves the problem no. if we leave those institutions in place where you can just rack up hundred thousand dollars in student loans yeah and then get out and spend the rest of your life working that off i think that's a problem yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing that's interesting about student loans is that, um, you know, so many people go into government service because there's this option for student loan forgiveness if you do a certain number of years of qualifying government service. And, um, you know, so that can be with state institutions or, or other institutions. And I wonder how that would change people's willingness to work in those positions. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of unanswered questions there for sure did you notice when you enlisted did you notice that being a motivating factor for a lot of people you went in with was mm. that school aspect i don't know the the background of going into the reserve versus going into the, directly into the military i don't know if there's a difference between the benefits that you get or anything definitely yeah so i've done um about a cumulative 1.5 years of active duty service i was activated for um, a year during COVID and then between training and, and other like short-term activations, I've had about a year and a half of qualifying service. So I've earned like 60% of the GI Bill. I don't have 100% GI Bill um, because I've never been active duty. So there is a difference in that, um, in that benefit for folks. But I think a lot of the reservists really did it because they love their community. Like the the pay is fine. The pay is good. Um, and the benefits are are nice to opt into. Um, but you do have to do like 20 years of service, or at least that's the the commitment that I have is 20 years of service to even get like retirement benefits and things like that. So it's really more about like serving your community as a reservist. I think most people really are motivated by that. Um, active duty members get a lot of additional benefits. So if I were to go back and do it differently, I'd do four years of active, active duty. duty. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And if anyone was like considering like weighing their options, I always encourage them to do at least one tour of active duty service because, you know, it just signs you up for a lot more. Mm -hmm. Are you, you're automatically eligible then if you do four years for like yeah. the GI Bill? Or whatever, extent. like one, one full term of services. It sort of varies between the different, um, the Department of Defense and the Coast Guard, which is Department of Homeland Security. Are the contracts the same for when you enlist as a reserve? Ooh, I don't. Um, my first year, my first contract was, I think, four years, but I don't hold me to that. <laughs> Are you, how much time left do you have on your contract now? Let's see. So I'm going on 10 years now. So I've got an, a full another 10 years. So I hope to, uh, to make it to that upper echelon. Oh, you're going <laughs> to do the full 20. Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Wow, okay. I'm planning to do 20 years. Yeah. So I'll continue to be a reservist, um, as a supervisor. How does that work? If you get called into service, do you... So the maximum service I would probably be called up for, and I, I would say never say never. Um, it's possible that, that something different could happen. But um, usually for reserve officers, it's 28 days. So, and, oh, that's And it's usually terrible. once per year. So I, you know, they try to kind of limit the deployments for people, um, recognizing that reservists have civilian jobs too. Mm -hmm. So, um, and because I'm in um, civic leadership here, at least um, when I got called up for COVID orders, that was Title Ten orders, which means like involuntary. So it's like you're you're going no matter what. Um, most orders aren't that way. Mostly they'll see if it if it's possible for you to take those orders, and if so, um, then they'll send you. So it's nice. A lot of people want to take active duty orders. What did you have to do when you were called in for that Title Ten? So I actually did contact tracing and COVID preparedness and ordered PPE and stuff like that um, up at Sector Humboldt Bay. Oh, wow. So I was able to stay home or like stay at my house with my spouse and my dogs and, and then go up there um, for kind of a day job. So Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was good. And how long was that? Was that 28 days, that one? No, that was almost a year. Oh, yeah. full year. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, then it's uh, definitely beneficial that you were here, right? Yeah, it's good that I was It would have been awkward here. if they shipped you you know, to the East Coast. And said, I know. All right, well, yeah, a lot of people did. It was an interesting time, especially in that first few months when we there was a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we weren't sure how bad it was going to be, like what the impacts were going to be, and um, yeah, it was an interesting time. But it was great to work at the air station. I got to know all the a lot of the pilots and the um, leadership here in in Humboldt. Yeah, what an experience, right? That's cool. I do want to just make sure. Okay, I just wanted to check our time because I know yeah, you got to totally. be somewhere. Um, yeah, I think that's great. I think, I think that that arguably gives you some edge, at least in leadership, having to go through that. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's interesting. I think um, people have a very set perception of what I'm about as a leader. Um, I think like where I fall on the political spectrum in particular, but um, I really think my lived experience is kind of all over the place. <laughs> and I can see, you know, I can see issues from a lot of different angles and um, and I've been part of a, a community of folks who, who I think are very, honestly, view the world in a very through a very conservative lens, and and that's that works for me to to kind of communicate effectively about that. So where do you think you fall? Are you more center, more? I think left? I'm a little on the left. A little left. <laughs> and part of that is my environmental background, and you know my my uh, take on social issues and. Um, I'd really like to see us be as inclusive and, you know, forward-looking as possible about issues and lean into technology advancements and, and things like that. You know, I think that um, that's part of, like, my my parents' uh, view of the world and, and a big part of mine, um, really focused on education. And so a lot of the things that kind of are part of the, 
the left leaning side of the spectrum are like really resonate for me. But I, I do have that military background and, you know, and Coast Guard does law enforcement too. So I, I have that kind of, um, dichotomy going dichotomy, on. Dichotomy, yeah. <laughs> it makes it really interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> totally. What is your stance on guns? On guns? Yeah. Um, well, could you be more specific? <laughs> well, I left it kind of broad because I could see you being kind of a, you know, second, second advocate because you had that military experience, mm-hmm. but when people throw out the left-leaning thing, they always kind of go, so, you know, we should restrict guns. And obviously with, um, not to get too political on this, though, sure. it is a political podcast, yeah. the Uvalde ex- incident. Of course. Um, those, those mass casualty events always, always draw attention to guns. Absolutely. So I just wanted to get your stance. What do you, where's your stance on the Second Amendment, I suppose? <laughs> well, I mean... So the Second Amendment, I, I guess I fall in the camp of like the Second Amendment was was written and came about in a time when when guns were very different. Um, gun technology was different. Right. And so, um, you know, I think it's always important to look at it through that lens. Um, and, you know, it wasn't really speaking to the kind of circumstances that we have today. Um, so with that in mind, I would say I support uh, reasonable restrictions on guns and uh and that's always like with a big asterisk, right? Because what's reasonable? Yeah, open to um, interpretation. Yeah, I, I know that we have, um, you know, um, mental health related restrictions on guns and uh, gun like red flag laws. Yes, and like um, gun violence restraining orders, things like that. Um, and I would love to see us have more like buyback programs um, because I think there. Are, I've actually talked to a lot of folks in Humboldt who have a gun that they don't want. <laughs> And they like somehow ended up with it or they don't want to admit how they ended up with it where, you know, I think there's a lot of, we've talked about that sort of like the outlaw vibe of Humboldt. There are a lot of people who would like to surrender a gun and don't necessarily feel like they have the, the clearest path to do that. So I'd like to see us do like buybacks and, you know, no questions asked um, returns for guns to get some off the streets. Um, I do know that we have a pretty significant issue with, um, you know, with felons um, having having guns in Humboldt. So, you know, certainly more enforcement of that is important. Do you think so, that's in relation to the, the drugs? I think it area? is. Yeah. 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 That and, you know, just um, it being kind of, I think we have a reputation as a place where people can go to escape the quote real world or the rest of the world, you know, behind the redwood curtain and, you know, I think people come here who who are often running away or escaping something. So. Well, the Emerald Triangle branding is pretty pretty enticing for yeah, for a powerful. lot of the wrong elements. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think there's that still that reputation too that you can come here and get rich in the cannabis sector, which is uh, increasingly less true. But um, but it's getting having a more dangerous element now. Do you think there should be restrictions in place for certain types of firearms, um, like the the common one is the assault rifle ban that's been thrown out or assault weapons. I don't even know how they're branding it anymore. I think that sounds reasonable to me. That's within the realm of reasonable restrictions, but I, I would really want to talk more about kind of what, what people see as like the benefit of having assault weapons. Is it just like the right to arm themselves or is it something more? Um, I, I really would like to kind of dig into that a little more. Now for the Coast Guard, do you guys do any, weapons training because you're not you're not a combat based yeah unit. i don't i don't carry a weapon okay. so um i did in boot camp i did you know shoot a handgun um we did some basic mark marksmanship and and gun familiarization but yeah 
we did a little firearms work. Okay. I didn't know how that worked out with the Coast Guard. Yeah. I mean, so there are like boarding officers and people who um, who have a more law enforcement related job and, and they certainly um, carry guns. But okay. yeah, I haven't. Okay. And as an officer, do you, you don't have to carry a... I do not have to carry a weapon. Nope. Um, Yeah. In my particular job, I don't. So I, and I, you know, I think some of my perception on guns is that I, I didn't come from like a gun owning family. Um, I didn't grow up like hunting. I've shot skeet before and it was really fun. (laughs) So to me, like shooting a gun has only exclusively been like marksmanship and um, for like recreational purposes. So I think, you know, part of my perception is just that like, I'm not that familiar with them and I, I don't personally see the need to have one because I didn't grow up in a family who was like, yep, you gotta, you gotta have guns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I told, I fully admit that like my view of things is probably really skewed by that, you know? Well, I think that's a very honest answer, right? I think you, it gets dicey when you talk about guns. People it does. Always, yeah. <laughs> it, it can get very uncomfortable, especially if there's a diehard talking about it you know in one way or the other if they're very anti and don't see a need for them and think you and you can't make a judgment call on what is right and what is wrong because it's it's another multifaceted issue where there are consequences to having a society with guns and there are benefits and yeah it's like do you want to where do you draw the line in that and is there a line to be drawn yeah and i can see where people are coming from who feel that they have a right to be armed to um, you know, protect themselves from unfair rules and being imposed on them. And, and, you know, that's why the second amendment came about. Right. So I, I, I get that conceptually. I just didn't, I didn't really grow, grow up, up in, in, a, in a culture where that was like really emphasized. Um, so I, you know, I will admit that I lean into the more peace, peace approach and like, you know, how can we, um, bring people together to like collaborate on issues without necessarily feeling that that's what we have to turn to, to protect ourselves from each other. Cause really we're talking about like protecting residents, protecting themselves from their government. And like, how can we not have that division that that's most important to me? (laughs) So whether people have guns or not, I mean, I know it's their right. And I certainly um, would lean into approaches that encourage people to surrender weapons that they don't want. um, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. That that seems like loading for (laughs) a felon has a gun and he's like, I know I shouldn't have this. So we need to do something. Okay. Let's go take it somewhere. Let's get that. Yeah. I think that's, that would be beneficial. That no questions asked, like just turn it in. Just bring it. Yep. Yep. Turn it in. And doesn't we'll... matter. Does it have a serial number or not? It's yeah. okay. Just bring it in. Yeah. I think that could be helpful. Yep. Yeah. That seems like low hanging fruit. So I'd like to, you know, encourage us to pursue options like that. And um, you're right. It is a really hot button issue. And I am a little hesitant to. Oh, no, like, not to put you on the spot. Gosh, you know, I mean, like what. And, and I think some of so much of that is decided at a level that's like well above the county. Right. You mm-hmm. know, there's um, there's so there's relatively little that local government can do aside from you know, enforcement that is focused on um, getting guns off the street or buybacks or things like that. So those are the options available to us. Yeah, I just had to ask with everything that's been going on. It's it's one of those issues where it's obviously you guys can't, you know, do a gun ban right. at, a, at a city council level or a supervisor level. But I think in order to understand, you know, your elected officials, it's important to kind of get a well-rounded opinion of them on where they stand in sure. a variety of fields. On all the big issues. Yeah. Yeah, just to, totally. Just so you can get a, a perspective because anybody can hit you with their their lines of, oh, yeah, like we need to do this and we need to do yeah. that and sell you whatever they want to sell you. But 
when you move past that and start getting to these fundamental questions of who somebody is, I think that's very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, our constitution is sort of, um, this sacred document and like, it's always interesting to me when, when it's like people are constitutional purists because I, I mean, that, if you if you asked me if I like like the city charter from 1940, I'd be like, heck no, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, it's like, weird. We came up with a lot so of things <laughs> that were not that yeah. great. Yeah, and yet, yeah, yeah. There is that argument, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's interesting. Document. It's like a really old document. Um, our country has changed so dramatically since then. Um, you know, so we don't have to get into like what what's bad about the Constitution. I mean, I think ultimately the founding fathers had some fantastic ideas there but um you know it's sort of like how how much of a purist are you going to be about anything that sort of um you know was a moment in time and represents the like intentions of of that founding body and i mean i feel kind of the same way about the bible but don't get me started there <laughs> are you are you religious at all i grew up um, going to church i i definitely grew up in the protestant tradition and i i don't currently go to church but um i would say i have uh it's interesting a lot of a lot of science, I was listening to this podcast that said a lot of scientists identify themselves as spiritual and they really like derive a lot of meaning from the connection that they have to nature. And so I would say that's where I fall. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's valid. I think as you can find connection to anything. I don't think you yeah. need to go to a, a church to be connected with God. I think you can, or to even be a, connected with a God, you can just enjoy your life and yeah. be connected to your friends and your family. I think that's important. I think it's all about having people that you care about. Yeah. And I I, um, I heard Jared Huffman, uh, Congressman Huffman, identify himself as a humanist. And I read up on that. And I was like, that's a really cool approach because it's about um, like doing good by your fellow person and being connected to others and, you know, like making decisions that are centered around um, doing the, the best, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number, essentially. I could get behind that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, well, Natalie, thank you. I had a great time talking with you. I really enjoyed that. Thank Do you, you have any last issues you want to plug or plug where people can find your, your webpage, your stuff? <laughs> sure, yeah. People can go to arroyoforsupervisor.com. So um, A-R-R-O-Y-O for supervisor.com. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Natalie. I really Thanks, enjoyed man. that. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.